0: When times in our lives seem confusing and your world appears to be just a little too crazy, go ahead and take a rest here. Laugh, learn, and enjoy a little bit from the lives of others with author and business coach, Dennis Mansfield. Then share it with others because joy is just around the corner.
1: A friend of mine recently said, the only stuff that happens, happens along the way. So get going, I would add, Let's get going because the world is just around the corner. Hi, this is Dennis Mansfield, and welcome to the podcast. Why is it that many of us have misplaced our ability to laugh at ourselves? You know, in some sense... It's as if many of us feel that our own lives are so important that we have to make others suffer due to our strong stands. Where's the laughter? Where's the joy? Well, what is it about all of us that wants us to do things right but end up arguing with others and maybe even, well, saying foolish things ourselves that we have so little uh, self-control To say, hey, I'm sorry, I just said something stupid. Well, let's talk about politics. Because politics and culture intertwine. And, you know, over the most recent years, it's been a bloodbath. It's been a bloodbath, but it never was that way in certain time periods. Yes, yes, yes. Politics can be brutal, and it was brutal with our founding fathers. But there are other times It certainly was brutal during the Civil War, but there were other times. There were times when Teddy Roosevelt would come forward and challenge people to think. There were times when uh, we saw the comic flair of a Franklin Roosevelt in the middle of uh, World War II, in the middle of his four times as president. But the one that stands out, the man who had an ability to entertain, was, of course, the entertainer, Ronald Reagan. He had been governor of the state of California and then um, ran for president when he was in his 60s, but he lost. It was 1976 and he was running against the incumbent, quote unquote, President Gerald Ford. So finally, after the 76 loss, he begins the process to run for president in 80. He wins against Jimmy Carter. He He beats Carter. Carter and his vice president, Walter Mondale, leave the White House. And, of course, Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush come in. Well, four years later, there's the opportunity for the Democrats to field a a really uh, energetic, positive uh, candidate. And they picked Fritz Walter Mondale. Fritz Mondale had an ability to laugh. He had an ability to enjoy life. He was serious about life, but he wasn't serious about himself. Reagan knew that. And in the very first debate of that particular 1984 season, Reagan was off. He was terrible to hear him speak. It was like, are you befuddled? And of course, years later, people thought, well, was that the onset of Alzheimer's? He just wasn't the man. So by the second debate, there was a moment in time where Reagan, at age 73, as the incumbent president, was asked a question by the journalist about his age. And his former vice president, Walter Mondale, Fritz Mondale, sat watching him. The response was unbelievable. Take a listen. You
0: already are the oldest president in history. And some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mondale.
1: <laughs> Think of that. Think of that. The classic uh, part of that is what you could see on video and of course YouTube it and you would get even more. Uh, Fritz Mondale is howling. He's laughing because Ronald Reagan makes fun of age by saying that Mondale's youth inex- inexperience would not be an issue in the entire debate. And it was just done in a way that was fun. And, and so... If you think about it, laughter in our world is essential to kindness, it's essential to joy, and it's also essential to self-deprecation. We oftentimes in the world of social media uh, are always promoting uh, kind of who we want to be. Well, that's not really the way it should be. I always appreciate someone who just says, I'm not doing well today. And then I love to engage with them, talk with them, see what's going on. And you couldn't have a president later on who had more pressure on him, more intense scrutiny um, than George W. Bush? He's president-elected in 2000. He's sworn in in 2001, and on 9/11, 2001, all hell breaks loose, and we're attacked. How does he keep going? He says in his book *Decision Points* that it's through laughter, it's through finding the joy, it's through encouraging others, and so. <laughs> They have this annual event where the White House Correspondents Association have a large dinner. Now, Bush, as every president before him, when they were having this, to every president after him, up to, I believe, Donald Trump, uh, would go to it, and they'd speak, and they'd parry the, the attacks of humor based on different people. Well, of course, President Trump doesn't go there because the attacks are not humorous. But George Bush went there. And in this particular one, think about this. George Bush stands at the podium, but there's two podiums. And next to him is a George Bush impersonator. This particular impersonator's name is Steve Bridges. And he's dressed exactly like the president, down to his tie. And all of a sudden, you got the humor of the man. I like to listen in. It's going to be a little bit difficult to distinguish the two voices because they are so close. But the one that's comical is Steve Bridges. The one that's deadpan but also comical is George W. Bush.
2: As you
3: know, I always look forward to these dinners. It's just a bunch of media types. Hollywood liberals, Democrats like Joe Biden. How come I can't have dinner with the 36% of the people who like me? (laughs) The only thing missing is Hillary Clinton sitting on the front row rolling her eyes.
1: I thought thought the line about Hillary Clinton rolling her eyes was just extraordinary. Why? Because George W. Bush uh, had a relationship with Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton that was friendly. In fact, George Herbert Walker Bush embraced both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush as if they were sons or brothers to each other. And George W. used to introduce ex-president Clinton as... My brother from another mother. See, humor is vital to health, and humor is vital to our nation's health. We've got to stop taking ourselves so seriously and poke fun at ourselves. You know, as a uh, kind of an add on to today's show, I wanted to introduce you to an incredible young man that I've had the honor of knowing for the last year and a half. Uh, his name is Joe Zhang, and he's from China. Joe, welcome to our podcast. Hi, guys. It's Joe from it, China. It's really fun to have you with us. Now, give uh, give our listeners on the podcast just a tiny bit of background on yourself.
2: Okay, so it's Joe, and uh, I'm from China, obviously. And uh, I can I came to America and live with Den- the Dennis family for last year, the past year, mm-hmm. and uh, during my senior in high school.
1: And then you made a decision to go on to college. We happen to live in Idaho. So you made a decision to go to University of Idaho. You are in your freshman year. So I thought it would be kind of fun in our podcast today to have our listeners hear about a Chinese high school and college student who entered into America and was immersed in American culture. Dude, your first year that you came, your junior year in high school... You didn't come to Idaho. You came to Texas. This was like Shanghai Noon, a movie. What was it like for you to go into the land of uh, all hat, no cattle?
2: Well, yeah, that was my first year here in America. And uh, I was staying with another family. And they are really nice to me, too. And, uh, well, to me, Texas was just uh, really big, you know, and wild and stuff like that. And I...
1: Did you, did you ever think... Uh, when you were there, that you were the land of cowboys? I mean, did it remind you of that? I mean, you're coming from China, you know. Uh, I, I would imagine that there's this sort of Wild West feeling about. I'm going to Texas?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have heard of it and uh, heard about uh, cowboys in China, of course. And um, when I first know that I'm going to Texas, I thought I'm going to uh, ride horses.
1: Uh. <laughs> to, to school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah to school.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and, and the... Uh, the young man that rode bicycles a lot in China came, but didn't have horses to ride in Texas.
2: Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of disappointing, though, because I I I learned how to ride horses in China to prepare, you know. Yeah, but there you were. Now you you finished off your junior year and you decided to stay in
1: America. Well, you're away from your family. That had to be difficult.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. But I do come go back to China. Uh, twice a year pretty much like during Christmas and Mm -hmm. summer yeah so
1: and you get to see your family and of course uh, because you've been a part of our life we've been able to meet your mother and your sister and just have an enjoyable time but you came to Idaho why in the world did you come to Idaho most people don't even know where Idaho is they think it's Iowa or Ohio or some other place did you even know where Idaho was
2: honestly I didn't (laughs) but but, well you know what you could be an American. <laughs> well uh when I first I uh, know that I am coming to Idaho and I share that information to my friends and my family and they're, they're just oh you can just go and explore your life you know mm-hmm. there, and uh yeah, that's it. It's
1: been fun watching you explore your life. Now you're in college and you're exploring that freshman year. Did you get into a fraternity? Did you get into friends that were crazy? Tell us about, well, don't tell us everything, but tell <laughs> us about your freshman year so far.
2: Yeah, my freshman year has been pretty good. And just a little bit struggle, though, about the study part, but everything's fine. Everything's fine. I make friends. i um not yet joining clubs, but though because i'm still kind of struggling with studies but
1: i will i will Mm -hmm. well i tell you what you you keep your keep your focus on that you're going to do great so uh, for our listeners uh, give them one or two things about america that kind of blew your mind you read about america you heard music from america and suddenly you're living in america in two separate states what are the two things that really pop up in your mind about the culture of america and the people of
2: america so I think the the one, the first takeaway that come up on my mind is that uh, you guys drive a lot uh, to me. And if you don't drive or you don't have a driver license, you can't go anywhere else like by yourself, you know, walking. And that's kind of tough to me. The first thing.
1: Well, I'd, I'd imagine, especially as a high school student and college student, that would be very tough. What's number two?
2: Burgers, I think. Explain yeah. that. <laughs> Well, you guys have really good burgers and uh we do have burgers in China too, but uh it's 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 kind of better here. So so
1: of the burgers in America, ladies and gentlemen, this is great. I just love this. <laughs> Other burgers in America, what's the best ones that you've enjoyed so far?
2: Oh, uh Red Robin. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. And uh I like the salad there. Red I, well, Robin? Let's yeah, it. The black and uh Black and blue? Yeah, that one's good.
1: good. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, there you are. Just a small vignette of a wonderful young man's life who is really a global an international um, citizen. Someone who has uh, grown up in China. His father's a businessman. His his life has been very uh, focused on business. And now you're going into business. That's your degree, correct?
2: Yes. Yes, Business. And what's the other one? Uh, I have uh, computer science as a minor.
1: Computer science. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, we're honored to have you on the podcast. Do well. We, whenever you're in town, we'd love to have you pop in and say hi to the friends of our podcast. Sound like a deal? Yeah. Oh, yeah. and and I want to thank you on teaching me all the Chinese, all the Mandarin <laughs> that I know. So, tang Si lao lao.
2: Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> there we go.
1: See, I, I, I'm learning every day. <laughs> if you
3: ever plan to move to west travel my way take the highway that's the best get your
0: kicks on route 66
1: not too long ago uh, my wife susan and i had the opportunity not to follow the brown signs but instead to follow the historical signs of parchment And Ken, you remember this when we took our grandson uh, Cole and traveled from Lewis and Clark's Trail all across through Great Falls, all the way across through uh, uh, the, oh my heavens, there were areas that were water, river, uh, mountain areas, Lolo Pass, there were snow areas all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And now we were in our car traveling and uh, there were no, there weren't really a whole lot of brown signs, but there were there were signs that were Lewis and Clark signs. So I guess you could say they were, they were like that. <laughs> However, the thing that blew me away on that trip, and that most of us who love history, was that Sacagawea or Sacagawea was pregnant on that trip, and Meriwether, Meriwether Lewis was the uh, uh, deliverer, the doctor of the baby that she had when the baby came to full term. And they named him Pomp. His real name was what? Jean-Baptiste. That's right, Jean-Baptiste. And the father's name was Charbonneau. So they took that as that last name. Sacagawea or Sacagawea ended up with this baby on her back, and as, as my bride Susan, and as my grandson Cole, and I traveled, we were just stunned, we were like, oh my gosh but you and I discovered something else because after that trip was all over with Lewis and Clark and after the Mandan village was there where Sacagawea was left with her husband and with their little baby, the little baby eventually was given over to William Clark to raise. Now that's the Clark on Lewis and Clark. And William Clark took him all over the United States and then over to Europe and we didn't fully know that until we were on a Brown Signs brothers from Boise trip, and uh, let's talk about that.
0: Right on. So we end up uh, following the signs, the Brown Signs, and uh, it took us to Inskip Station, and
1: you know it- I can't even say that word without smiling. I just want to just skip. Skippy's, you know, in. <laughs> Skippy's in. Skippy's in. It's like, okay, that's gotta be, there's gotta be history on that yeah. name. Go ahead.
0: It truly is. Uh, you know, it even says that uh where the monument now for Jean Baptiste uh is, is, is actually on a working ranch that had been uh a toll road. Toll road, that's right. And and it was just incredible. So people going from San Francisco back to Boise or to Montana, Montana. Wyoming, yeah. all those. And you know, bringing gold to and from, or whatever it was, or families or moving families. across, sure. yeah, the the whole thing, they would go through this toll road because yeah. it was safe.
1: It was safe, and it was
0: it, as we saw, <laughs> it was super flat. Oh, I don't sorry. think we saw a tree in eight miles. Oh my heavens! Even the cows were like, "Where is everything?" They were
1: two dimensional, laying on the ground, flat. Crew, yep. And so we were sitting there, and we see the sign for his name. Yes, but we don't know what the monument's about yet. Not at we're all. traveling in. What happened?
0: <laughs> so we're driving and we're driving and we're driving. We're not we know that we we haven't seen it yet because it's this flat long road. Oh my heavens. We get up there close to the uh, monument itself, but before we see the monument, we see this old wrought iron uh uh look like uh, you could see where there a chimney was. It yeah. was an old house that and that was where the hostel was. Yeah. That's where the people would stay Correct. in their journeys. And the sign was amazing. It even says Inskip Station, uh, founded in 1863 by Dr. E.W. Inskip and his partner, Osgood.
1: <laughs> now, hang on for I a second. I just love that name. For all the rest of history, you're known as one name. Osgood. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Osgood. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, Keep I going. Get a
0: kick out of it. Well, everybody's got to have a sidekick.
1: I guess. Like. Batman has Robin. E.W. Inskip has?
0: Osgood. Osgood. But uh, yeah, it was really interesting to see the remains of this shelter that yeah. was uh, hostile. hostel. Th- th- housed what? Hundreds, if not thousands? Yeah, yeah, exactly. People going through. It was just an amazing thing. But one of the signs that we saw in, in reference to John Baptiste, how brilliant he was. It was incredible. He was, uh, he was f-
1: uh, fluent in, I think, yeah, five, five wasn't languages, it? five yeah. European languages.
0: Yeah. And here he was. He must have looked more of his mother than his father. You you know, as a, as a native American. Yeah. Uh, And so here he is traveling Europe with, you know, Captain um, Clark, Clark, and, and he's been teaching him all these things and, and he comes back and he starts to become wealthy in San Francisco. Yeah. And then he decides to go back to home grounds in Montana, Wyoming, and he's at, in skip station and gets a pneumonia.
1: Yeah. And it was a tragic moment in his life. He was 61, 62 years old, ready to continue on this incredibly glorious life that he'd had. He actually had helped the, the Mormons on the Mormon Brigade as they came across the United States all the way into the mid-area uh, of Merced and Fresno and that area, and then ultimately brought them back up to Salt Lake. And he was one of the Indian guides. He was He was remarkable. In Europe— he, he dressed in incredible finery. He was at, with German princes, and he was with uh, French uh, leaders. He knew people that most people don't even know today that were historically important at that time, and they knew him. And the fact that he had started out on the back of Sacagawea, it, being born in the wilderness of the Lewis and Clark uh, you know, Corps of Discovery trip, And survived in order in order to thrive. And there we were looking at his burial monument. I mean, I was humbled by that. I thought this is part of the America that we never stopped to look at, and we didn't know what we now know until we read that sign. Until we got off at the Brown Sign Brothers uh, designation that we always look for, which are those brown historical signs, and followed it those dusty dusty miles
0: amazing.
3: Welcome to Movies with Meg. Among all
1: the movies made in Hollywood, there is one that stands out decade after decade. Today we're going to talk about Citizen Kane. It is an amazing film, written, produced, and starring Orson Welles.
3: Well, and one of the most amazing things about it is that he was only 24 when he did the motion picture, which is amazing for nowadays, let alone back then.
1: He had this uh, radio program that was doing very well across the nation. And when they came to him and asked him to do a film, he decided, you know what, I'll just go for the goal line. And when he did, He asked for this exorbitant amount of money and then to direct it and to star in it. So when he did, the people around him just said, well, I guess he knows what he's doing.
3: Yeah, they thought, hey, he's worth it. Let's do this.
1: Citizen Kane is a fascinating film because it really talks about then, the 1940s, set in that. of course, it's set earlier than that because it goes for about 30 years.
3: And I think it's it's classic. It's a classic story that anyone can relate to because it's really talking about, um, you know, what makes us happy in life, what brings us joy, and what doesn't. And, you know, here it is, the story of this mega-rich man. And in the end, he realizes that what really made him happy was something from his childhood.
1: We're going to start with the end, and that is Rosebud. One of the, fil- one of the film's amazing lines that has picked up decade after decade in trivia, is what's the word that ends when when Charles Foster Kane dies? And he says, Rosebud.
3: Yeah, and throughout the whole film, they're trying to figure out what Rosebud means. And so you're seeing different flashbacks in his life. And only at the very end of the movie do you find out what it means.
1: And when you think about wealthy people who've basically made so much money. Um, The character was based off of William Randolph Hearst, even Hearst Castle. Um, This castle in the film shows huge rooms, but he's always alone. Huge areas, but the only people that come up to him are his servants. Uh, He does have a couple wives, though, doesn't he?
3: Yeah, he's married when he's young for love, and then he self-sabotages and... Uh, has an affair and then ends up marrying that person, as and it turns out that they aren't very happy after all, and she leaves him.
1: Uh, when when we think about wealth and power, we have to think about politics too. Uh, we we see that in the movie, Charles Foster Kane makes a decision that the people love him and that he loves the people. He cares for the working man. That's the idea, and um, you know, as we recently viewed the film, we both talked about mm some similarities.
3: Yeah, he he seems a lot like Trump in that he's got the whole world, everything at his fingertips. Yet it's almost like he's buying people's affections. And I mean, I, I don't know what Trump's like in real life, but he certainly does have an arrogance about him that rings true for the movie Citizen Kane.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I'm a conservative. I make no bones about it. I've had years in public policy, but it doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a liberal. When somebody enters out of Hollywood or out of entertainment and goes into politics, there's a star quality about him.
3: Absolutely. Well, and I think that Trump had a star quality about him even before. I mean, he was in many films that had a TV show. And so strip away the presidency. We saw the character of the man before he became president. And it's just so interesting how you can have so much of the world at your fingertips and still want more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we've seen with, with Trump. And I think that that's what um, Charles Foster Kane, the main person in citizen Kane really sought after. Um, He tried his hand at politics and, Failed because he, we lived in a more moral country back then and an affair sunk his, his candidacy. But I think that the two are very similar in, in how they behave and mm-hmm. the things that they value. Th-
1: there's an assurance in Charles Foster Kane's life, a purpose. I know where I'm going from the time he's a young man. And, and the story has to open up in a way that uh, our, our listeners today say, really? Well, see, he's born into poverty.
3: Yeah, his, his house was like a, looked like a one-room house, uh, you know, fireplace and in the middle of, I don't know, I think it was Colorado maybe. It might have been, yeah. Uh, it was very snowy and looked very, very impoverished.
1: And at some point they discover that there's a gold mine that's one of the richest veins in the history of America. So the mother and the father have to come to an agreement, the mother who's a Played by Agnes Moorhead, who played uh, the mother on *Bewitched*, uh, is a youthful actress in this because it's the 1940s. You know, three decades before she was the witch's witchy mother, and uh, and and yet she was witchy in this film. Her character is, "I'm going to protect my son and make him wealthy," and then the the dad is this sort of dody-do kind of guy. <laughs> well, I don't I get to say something about where he goes? You know? And she just basically shuts him down until they bring the man in who negotiates all of Charles Charles Foster Kane's life. And
3: Yeah, he becomes like the manager and he promises a large sum of money to them every month if they will just um, let him raise raise him and yeah. and and raise him into being the kind of person um that was exactly opposite from how they were
1: yeah in fact not only opposite in the, in terms of poverty but opposite in terms of you could tell the, the father had a good heart but he was he was just kind of a you know simple man and the, the mother was doing the best she could for her son when the movie starts what is he doing that's important um and the snow is coming down, like you said, and he's sledding.
3: Yeah, he's playing in the snow. He's, he is enjoying his time on his sled, and his mother strips the sled away, and he is taken away and, to our knowledge, never sees his parents again.
1: And he does see his sled. Of all the things that he ends up becoming wealthy, Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane, and acquire statues and acquires just an amazing amount of things.
3: Yeah, so much so that at the end of the movie, you just see crates and crates of unopened objects that are just covering his vast house. And it's like, did he even look at them? Did he just purchase them to purchase them? So he had so much stuff. And he sought out this one item that gave him the most joy. We'll talk about
1: that in the next episode of movies with Meg it is an honor to be able to talk about classic films incredible experiences well and learning lessons from them with you on just around the corner
3: thanks meg for being here thanks for having me
1: Now, this is a story of just one huge fun fact. Oftentimes in this segment, I bring up different interesting things. No, 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 not today. Today is one huge fun fact. The first championship game for NFL football happened when? Okay, fans, you're listening. 1930. What was so unique about that particular championship game? Now, it wasn't the world championship. It was just the NFL playing. There was no upstart team or league, I should say. There was just the NFL. Well, two incredible teams made it all the way to the championship. One was the Chicago Bears. Chicago Chicago Bears were owned by George Hallis. And he said, man, we could make money off of this thing. So the other team that came in for the championship was a group that no one even knows about because the following year they folded. They were called the Portsmouth Spartans. Sounds like a high school band. And, or band, actually, a band of football players. And uh, they might as well have been a band because it was a terrible shellacking they took. The Bears just knocked and brutalized them. But here's the unique part of it. They could not find a football field on which to play the 1930 NFL championship game. So they found a hockey rink. And then they... The hockey rink was comfortable to them because just the week before, there had been a circus, and they had put all the dirt and all of the, uh, well, animal matter there on the ground. Nobody had cleaned it up, and they brought the team in. Here's the other thing. It was only 60 yards long. So they had to amend all the rules of football, and from from that, they had to play in a 60-yard field so that when they'd get to a certain point, They'd have to move the ball back as if the offense still had X amount of yards that they would play in a regular game. The, the process of that, um, the, so many of the players were so sickened by the smell of animal defecation from the circus that they were vomiting during the game. Well, George Alice didn't care. It was packed. People came to the championship, the world championship of the NFL, 1930 the first one from that game, because of how they had to do it. Some interesting uh, events happened as a part of the game. For example, they they had to make sure that, that where the goalpost was was in a position so that nobody got hurt. So from that point on, they put it in that position for all of the NFL games. The hash marks never were on a football field ever until that championship game because they had to know where moving back in a 60-yard field, that they could put it on the 25. Because if you think about it, you only have 60 yards. So they put the hash marks, and then the hash marks became a part of the NFL. What was most amazing is that the tradition uh, of squaring off in in scheduled championship games is the tradition that still is a part of us today. The owners agreed to split up the league. It went into two divisions right after that game. And then ultimately when the startup uh, upstart uh, AFL came into being AFL used the same roles that the NFL had been using since 1930, since the championship game played on an ice hockey rink. That's pretty amazing. It's a fun fact about football for you. Just Around the Corner is a feature of DennisMansfield.com original music and podcast production by michael seals kudos to the traveling wilburys nat king cole ken and colin mansfield ryan yeager jerry woods and kevin miller in the morning for your inspiration.